Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for being here and joining us here at Untitled. My name is Larry Osementa, uh, and I have the pleasure of being in conversation with Damien Davis, um, who's an artist I've had an opportunity to get to know over the last couple years. Um, he's been in some exhibitions that I've curated. I am an avid collector of his work. <laughs> Um, and I'm really excited about the solo presentation that he has here with Latchkey Gallery and uh, just providing an opportunity for you to learn more about his practice and this particular project that he's going to be presenting in January. Yes, at, at, uh, at Weeksville and Brooklyn. Um, so I guess my first question to you um, is, so Damon works with Plexi as a material, um, which I, I think was what immediately drew me to him. Um, and I think we had many conversations in terms of how do we talk about the work? Is it painting? Is it sculpture? Is it a combination? Is it an object? Um, and so I think it, the first place to start is how did you come to Plexi as a material, one? Um, and I guess talk to us about your process because there's a lot of research that goes into you know, the imagery and the, and the uh, codex that you're building or have built Codex. Yeah, you know. it's a nice word. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Some big words. That's that's what the curators do. All right. So yeah, talk to us about plexus and material. How did you arrive at it? Research. How do you, how do these paintings become what they are? Thank you. Um, well, I guess I'll just start from a place of gratitude. Thanks to Latchkey Gallery and Untitled for making all this happen. So the materials that I like to use, a lot of it is, uh, you know, again plexiglass but also like CNC milled wood, uh, 3D printed plastic, things like that. I'm really interested in using materials that have a super seductive quality to it, that have like a really nice finish that draw you in, make you want to touch. Um, because from a research standpoint, I'm really interested in talking about subjects that are very difficult for people to talk about or things that people don't typically want to talk about. So in order for us to get to that place, uh, the work has to kind of do all these things in order to kind of like draw you in and make you feel comfortable and make you feel at ease in order for us to really begin doing that cognitive work of figuring out what's actually going on and peeling back the layers of some of these themes that are important to me. And so did you arrive at this material by mistake, by intention? Like Kind of almost by accident. So um, I had just been really into the computer ever since like high school, really. Um, just I'm like kind of a nerd, so I like lines, vectors, mathematics, and the computer. So everything that I was making um, up until about five, six years ago was things that, for me, um, I was just super happy having them exist in the computer as like digital files or things that existed on the internet, and. Up until about six years ago, um, there wasn't sort of like universally available technology that allowed me to output things in all these different ways. And that's kind of where everything started to explode. So now all these things that I had been building and amassing on the computer for like well over a decade could now um, manifest themselves in all these different forms as like laser cut pieces of plexiglass or um, huge chunks of wood, things like that. And in terms of how you work, you work in series for the most part. Um, 
And the one that I think I was introduced to in terms of your work was the Blackmore series. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the Blackmore series, how that came to be, and how does that exist um, in this body of work yeah. that you're showing here? Yeah, so it's um, an ongoing series. Uh, these works in the booth are a continuation of that series that started off from a research project that I was doing for an artist, Lyle Ashton Harris. Um, he had been commissioned to do all this work about blackamoors, and for those of you that don't know uh, what blackamoors are, there's this large uh, or long history, rather, of decorative objects prevalent throughout Italy that use the black body as an aesthetic trope for um, object making, uh, decorative, functional objects, things like that. So. I had been doing this research for this other person, and at the time, I had kind of given up making art for myself, and a friend had invited me to do this performance piece, and then I made these kind of like little plexiglass shards, uh, laser cut as a way to facilitate this performance, and then it just became this question of like, oh, these are actually sort of nice things in their own right. Let me test the limits of what these things are capable of doing on their own. And that's when the first iterations of this series came to be. And now I number each one in the series. So this body of work actually marks me reaching number 300 in the oh, series. Wow. Yeah. It's been going for a while. And they've been getting more and more elaborate over time. Um, I like pushing myself to see how complicated I can make them, how uh, intricate I can make them. So this is kind of the highest example of that. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think people see the works, they've been referred to as collage, I guess, in a way. Yeah. But I think, unless you've been in the studio, you really don't understand the amount of labor that goes yeah. into it. Like, if he makes a mistake, the piece is trash, and he has to start again. Or he tries, he tries to rework it, but for the most part, there's a lot of labor in terms of making these things make sense so that when you see it, like, there are pieces that I've seen you know, years later that I catch little images or things that kind of function as a double entendre. So can you talk a little bit about the, the making and the labor yeah. that goes into it? Yeah, it is um, very labor intensive and there is a lot of attention to detail that goes into it. Uh, if there is an error that gets made, yeah, I mean, there's like a, a huge loss of time, loss of money because the materials are somewhat expensive. but uh, in terms of production, I kind of start with this critical question of, you know, how do I make a shape that I haven't seen before? And then it's about taking that shape and like splicing it and fracturing it into um, multiple smaller, smaller shapes, building uh, a narrative on top of that with this lexicon of shapes. And then there's this kind of like negotiation that comes into play with the hardware. All of the work that I make, um, is just held together with the hardware. I don't use any kind of glues or adhesives, so there's a lot of engineering at play in terms of like getting everything designed and produced in a way where it's all structurally sound and holds together on its own. And in terms of the shapes, can you talk a little bit about some of the shapes that have you know, that become part of this vocabulary, like the Nefertiti head, you yeah. know, the, the, the gorilla? Yeah. And, what, and the meaning with that, the symbology behind that for you? Yeah, so the, the shapes are part of this uh, larger overarching practice or, or question I have that's about thinking through or researching or processing the myriad ways in which uh, we as various societies mark people, places, and things as black. So like col colloquially, 
culturally, conceptually, things like that. And that's largely accomplished, at least right now, through this loosely fixed lexicon of shapes that I've been developing for myself over time. Um, I'm interested in language. I'm interested in like the messiness of language, the precariousness of language. Um, and in a lot of ways, the work itself is about acknowledging that. Uh, it's, it's very much rooted in like this kind of Stuart Hall approach to semiotics. So it's like you have this lived experience that's radically different from mine and the way in which you're going to interpret these things that I'm throwing at you are going to be very different from the way that I would interpret them. And in my mind, that's kind of where the real work comes in, where we have like a conversation and we start to build out what these things can mean in relationship to like what we're looking at, you and me, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so just naturally when you're doing this kind of work, when you're building out this language about like black folk and the ways in which black folk have kind of moved throughout the world, that typically gets conflated with conversations about currency. So like emotional currency, sexual currency, people as currency. So almost all of the shapes kind of um, oscillate between those various meanings. But then thinking about the Nefertiti specifically, you know, this project that I'm doing with language, I'm, I'm interested in it because it simultaneously feels very old. So when we think about like hieroglyphics or Dinkra symbols, things like that, but then it's also something that's really new, like emojis. So we're kind of doing this very old thing and it's become very new again, where we're kind of creeping towards this universal language of shapes. But for me, you know, there has to be an acknowledgement that it's like a super messy and complicated thing and things can get really fucked up through the work of trying to do that. And so to piggyback your point about currency, we're at an art fair. Yeah. Um, how do you think about that in terms of the presentation of this work? I'm sure you've had many conversations where you've had to explain the work. Um, some people probably just viscerally respond. Other people, need, you need to go a little bit deeper. Has this experience changed how you'll be thinking about the process of the work, or has it affirmed how you think about the work and how you work? Just particularly thinking about like the fervor around black artists who make figuration right now. It's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, for the sake of just making work as an artist, you can't think too much about this whole thing because that's going to fuck with your head. Because if you start making work for the sake of, you know, just selling it or it being in an art fair, I think that that does like really problematic things to what you're doing. For me, because this is the first time I've done anything at an art fair this scale, um, leaning into this conversation about like wealth and currency in a way that's substantive or in a way that um, complicates that felt like the only really rational approach. Um, and, I, and I mean, I think I should also just step back and talk about what this project specifically is yeah. about. So Black Wall Street. Yeah. Why? Why, why now? Almost wow. 100 years. Yeah. I guess for folks who are familiar, maybe give them a little bit of context as to what Green, Greenwood was, what happened, and, yeah. and why are you interested in it yeah. uh, in this particular moment, and, and also kind of in response to the presentation of your work in this, in this, in this totally, environment. Totally, totally, yeah. So we're um, nearing the 100th anniversary of the Black Wall Street massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And for those of you that aren't, 
familiar with what that is. Um, in 1920, 1921, there was this community of successful black businesses in the Greenwood section of Tulsa that was largely known across the country as Black Wall Street. And through a series of events um, over the course of a day, uh, pretty much all the white people in the town murdered almost all of the black people in the town, burned all of their businesses to the ground, and got in planes and literally dropped bombs on the businesses. Um, there's been some contemporary depictions of that right now that you can see. Um, but the critical... What, what are those depictions? Oh, Watchmen, you know. I don't know if Do you guys know that show? You all watching it, yeah. Act so. like y'all know about this show. Okay. <laughs> this is kind of like a crazy coincidence, because when I started um, doing this project, it wasn't something that I anticipated. I wasn't expecting a conversation about this specific chunk of history entering the mainstream in this way. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm thankful that it's entering this larger conversation, but I also think that... Um, my approach to it or my rationale for investigating it is probably slightly different. It, it kind of started from a book that a friend of mine uh, at the time going by Raina Gossett, she edited this book called uh, Trapdoor, Transcultural Production and the Politics of Visibility. And one of the things about all the essays in that book, it, it sort of asked this critical question like, you know, you know, I don't identify, I'm not trans, I don't identify as trans, but for people that are trans, is it actually a good thing for their visibility to increase when we're seeing the violence against trans bodies exponentially increase along with that visibility? So you can kind of extend that critical question to any sort of marginalized people, like people of color, women, people with disabilities, uh, people that identify as queer, things like that. You know, there's been many examples throughout history where your visibility, your amassment of political power, uh, financial stability, sort of almost in all these very serious ways, renders your body in more peril. And that's kind of this critical question that I'm trying to deal with right now. Like, what happens when black people, like, get rich, you know? And there's like, this very specific example of that shit getting burned to the ground. And there's so many instances that we see that happening at, um, you know, I'm really interested in like sort of futurist theory and there's this, this um, sort of concept like Afrofuturism 2.0 that thinks beyond um, sort of like our, our typical conceptions of what Afrofuturism looks like. It's like thinking about something beyond like I'm Sun Ra and I'm from Saturn, whatever but really thinking critically about the ways in which technology um, affects the lives of black people living today and imagining various ways in which technology that is currently existing um, can help or hinder um, black folk. So for me... So in, doing this yeah. so in doing this project, besides educating people on what happened in for me, I like to use the word future tense. What, what, what do you want people to get out of it? What do you want the viewers to get out of it? What do you hope to get out of making a body of work about this particular moment? Yeah, that's the thing that I don't know if I have like a full answer for. I feel like that kind of comes from the doing. Um, I think that one of the good things about doing this kind of work is that all those questions start to bubble up to the surface as you're doing it. 
And there's all these sort of issues that haven't even revealed themselves for me as I'm making these things, because there's all these questions about um, technology specifically and the ways in which black people can assert space and independence for themselves using emerging technologies. So like, like the gig economy and things like that. Like how does that actually affect um, the ways in which black people can become successful and all the different ways in which um, you can kind of like manipulate that against, against black people. Those are kind of the things that I'm trying to think through right now. And I don't have like the full answers for that. That's, that's kind of what the work is about. So you talk about technology as a tool um, and you also use the word disruption in the, dis the, the description of your work and what you aim to do with these objects. Can you talk a little bit about what it is that you're aiming to disrupt through your practice you know, when you do a project like this or any other projects that you might be thinking about? I don't know if I, I use the word disruption, but that might have been you. Kieran <laughs> um, is talking again. No, Sorry. but it's, you know, it's, it's a fair word. I think, um, you know, I kind of start from this point of figuring out how to make something that I haven't seen before and think about making it in a way that I haven't seen before. And then I'm really focused on talking about things that I don't see being talked about. Um, this is sort of a unique case where I thought nobody was going to talk about it and now everybody's talking about it. So that kind of shifts the way I have to talk about it. Um, but do, you, do you think it shifts to your benefit? I think so, because I think it just means that there's a richer conversation happening, because the, like, the work of explaining what this thing is is not something that I have to do as much of, or at least that's been the experience this week, is that there's a lot of people sort of already coming in with a baseline knowledge about this particular um, incident in history. So then we can really kind of peel back the layers of that and talk about like, okay, we're nearing the 100th anniversary of this thing, but how much has actually changed? Not much, in my opinion. Um, like the mechanisms at play and the precariousness and the ways in which these things can be dismantled, in my mind, are still very present and still very real and um, still very possible. So until we can start looking critically about the ways in which we um, are exposed to these kind of things. Like once we, have, once we start figuring out how we are exposed to these things, then we can actually do the work to build, um, I don't want to use the word like protections, but um, maybe like a cognitive awareness of what these things are and begin to start um, building countermeasures for that. We have a captive audience. I don't know, were there any burning questions? I want to do a check-in before I keep going. This gentleman right here. So, so Damon's been asked to describe what the work looks like in his own words for those who are listening to this podcast in the future. Yikes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I love um, lines, geometry, math. Uh, so everything that I make is very graphic. Uh, 
I'm really interested in like the psychological, emotional impact of color. Uh, so every object that I make is sort of rooted in that, like a very sort of strong sense. I feel like an asshole saying that. Um, there's a strong sense of color. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's something that's important to me and especially for this series, um, because it's about wealth and about affluence and about power, a lot of the colors that I use are about kind of keying into that. So there's a lot of like metal tones and golds and uh, glitter and iridescent and things that I haven't typically used, but I think uh, kind of help move this conversation or get your mind going thinking about ideas of like luxury and affluence and, and power. Yeah. Uh, one, one I want to go back to, you made a point earlier about, because um, we talk a lot about visual culture and you talked about, you use the word glyphs. Can you talk a little bit more about, I guess the glyphs that kind of function within these works that you make? Because there's so many different ways to read, like I think about the pieces that were in Race and Revolution, and like you had the picket fence, but the picket fence also could have read as like a train track or like a red line. Um, yeah, so for me, uh, the work is really about taking these large abstract ideas and distilling them into these base iconic forms. But after that work is done, I try to um, disassociate from the meaning as, as much as is possible. So I've got all these uh, rationales and all this meaning behind each individual shape, but there also has to be an acknowledgement that there's all these like myriad readings that come from that. And that kind of um, slippage is actually the thing that interests me. So it's like, if I'm using a, a fence and the fence is in white, then it's about a white picket fence and we can have that conversation. But then if it's in gray, and I'm laying them all along each other and I can make it look like a train track. Um, I can pull from like my family's lived experience from like Crowley, Louisiana, for example, where there's literally like a train track and all the black folk lived on one side of the town, all the white people lived on the other side of the town. And I can make work then that's about um, my parents' experience being the first ones to integrate their local high school in the 70s. So there's, I, I like the idea that the shapes have um, the glyphs have this power, but then I'm also allowing myself to just use them uh, in a decorative way or almost in a painterly way or, you know, gesturally. I like the idea that I can just kind of use them um, the same way you would any other form of mark making, but it's already imbued with all this meaning, so it can, it can do double duty in this way, where it can be aesthetic and still have content, and through the cognitive work that the viewer has to do to reconcile what all these things mean in relationship to each other, that's where um, meaning can be formed. Thank you. This gentleman over here had a question. Yes, speak Okay. Speak into the mic, brother. Cool. Uh, how you doing, brother? Thank you so much. Uh, my buddy Phil is a huge, huge fan of your work and put me on. I'm a big fan. Uh, beautiful stuff. Um, I wanted to ask in terms of, so there are all these influences. You talked about things like Afrofuturism that go into the inspiration for the work that comes out. Could you speak a little bit about, and if this is a thing, when you create a work, is there something about the work that you, that you then wrestle with in a new way that then inspires the work that you do for it? Like, does the work itself become a thing that you then wrestle with to inspire you to do other work? Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, are you talking just conceptually or from like a, like a tactile production standpoint? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that, that's going on all the time. Uh, you know, just like on a base level, like I challenge myself to make the work more complicated each time, and I kind of learn something new about how to manipulate the material from that. And sometimes there's things conceptually that get born out of doing that. Like if I figure out how to um, do some crazy terrazzo inlay with the plexiglass, then I can have this whole conversation about um, like Grecian or Italian luxury as it relates to, you know, whatever. Um, I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, no, it definitely. I, I, I wondered, is it some new wrestling that happened? Oh, sorry. Is it some new wrestling that, ha like, if you think about, like, a kind of how society and experiences influence the work that you made, is there sometimes when you've made this work that kind of speaks from that place that now you see this work and it helps you kind of build upon your experience of society and those influences? Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I th yeah. I, I hope so. Um, the the magic kind of comes from hearing what people have to say about that because I'm just kind of like just doing my thing. Like, okay, this is what I think it means. This is what these things can mean in relationship to each other. But there's that um, kind of special moment where somebody walks up to it and it's like a radically different reading. Yeah. And then that gets me thinking about things that um, I wouldn't have expected. So in, in that respect, uh, it's super helpful. And it's also complicated because, you know, inevitably there's going to be readings to the work that don't sit right. Right. You know, so then you got to recalibrate and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. So what do you do thank when, you. when, thank you, what do you do in those moments where, like, the reading doesn't sit right? Uh, pretend I didn't hear it. <laughs> um, change things. So, you know, the shapes aren't set in stone. It's like a living, breathing thing. So sometimes I'll drill down and I'll settle on a shape and I realize like there's some critical aspect of the design of the thing that's not doing what it needs to do. And if that's the feedback that I'm getting and it's important to me that that reading come across, then I know I need to go back and calibrate that shape in some way. Um, so the shapes, they fall in and out of favor over time. So some things that I did like five years ago, I don't touch those shapes anymore um, because the pieces are led by the research. It's about taking the existing shapes and trying to make that fit into that research. And then where those things fall short is where the development of the new shapes come in. And those shapes are usually uh, mutations of existing ones in one way or another. Um, so I, I allow that language of shapes to constantly be in flux. Yeah. Any other questions? This young lady? Yeah, come on. Come on down. Right. The next contestant. Huh? New car. Um, speaking about your lexicon of shapes and you know some of the new things that are coming up in your work, I was wondering if you could speak about the, it looks like postcard stamp, and also the, um, the piece with the money with the Nefertiti head. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, that's Thank you. actually um, really good to bring up. So because the research is about Black Wall Street, um, there's some new shapes that are more directly linked to um, monetary forms of currency, so thinking about like a dollar bill with the Nefertiti superimposed instead of a president. So thinking about like black money. Um, there's one that I kind of think of as a penny shape. And this is sort of one of the narratives that people don't often know about is that after um, all these businesses were burned to the ground, the children that survived this massacre would walk around and 
look for pennies in the rubble. Um, the postcard shape comes from photographs of the carnage that were then turned into postcards and white people would send happy notes to their relatives up north with uh, imagery of these burning buildings and lynchings, things like that, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, the research for this project? Because we were talking earlier about mining this historic trauma, using it as a platform for dialogue and discourse. What were some surprises that you found in doing the research? Was it gut-wrenching? Did you find moments of inspiration? I think the moments of um, inspiration were um, the most important parts of the research for me. Um, and that's kind of what allowed the work to look the way that it does now, because there's so many stories of resiliency baked into that. Um, and this idea that like, you know, there's, there's such this long history of like black folk being put through shit and still coming out like more beautiful and more strong, like stronger and more resilient um, because of that. So that kind of gave me permission to allow the work to be as beautiful as possible, even though it's talking about this super dark thing. In my mind, it's like, you know, I've always used beauty as like a seduction tactic to pull people in to have these conversations, but um, because that's already baked into the story of this massacre, it just kind of gave me permission to really go for it with this. Uh, you got to come over here. Don't be shy. Come over here. No, everybody else. Is, it's, the, it's a thing. It's a trend. It's a vibe. All right, then I'm going to do it. What do you do with your anger? Because you have to have anger. We all have anger about this. Yeah. It's yeah. So, Thank uh, you. Is this so angry you can barely stand it? Uh, <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I guess I, yeah, I mean, it makes me angry, obviously, but um, a lot of things do. And I, I guess, uh, I think that that maybe just comes from, like, my upbringing, so that's always kind of been baked into the narrative for me growing up. So I had parents that like wouldn't let me wear uh, hoodies growing up for like obvious reasons. Um, you know, I always had to wear like a shirt with a collar. You know, the vibe when you were little was like, you know, you'd want to wear like the ripped up jeans. I wasn't allowed to do that. I remember once um, I was maybe like 13 or something and we went to the mall and I bought a shirt you know, I'm like 13, it's like the 90s, like, yeah, environment, so I don't need a bag. And then I got this long lecture the whole ride home about how I should always ask for a bag when I buy something in the store, even if it's just a pack of gum, because someone will think when I'm walking out that I'm stealing it and that they'll shoot me. Because that was my parents' lived experience, you know. Like, my dad would have to fight kids every day because they were the first ones to integrate their high school. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's an important point, particularly when we did Race and Revolution, when you interviewed your mom. Just that experience of growing up in the South, you know, pre-integration, then post-integration, and does any of that seep into this work that we see, or just in general? Yeah, it's, it's a huge part of um, everything that I'm doing, because she is a huge champion of, 
African-American history specifically, so that's something that was always getting fed to me at a very early age. Um, her experience, like going to an all-black elementary school, being forced to integrate the local high school, going on to a historically black college, and then you know working for 30 years as a high school teacher, like all that's informing what I do. Um, what else? What about yeah. your dad? My dad was an electrician, which is probably where all the technology stuff comes in. Um, he was the one that would, I actually just found this out like a few months ago. Um, Cause my dad, my mother was like the one that was too scared to even go in the bathroom if there were white kids in the bathroom. And my dad was the one that would just like literally fight them every day after school. So they had to like graduate him early. <laughs> Because he was fighting too much. Well, at least he was a good student. <laughs> I don't know if that was it. But <laughs> so it's kind of like this, this, um, this oscillation between like um, sort of carefulness and um, wariness and then also trying to figure out how to like get that fight in at every turn. I think that's something I get from them a lot. Yeah. One more question. Uh, we'd love to hear your, your connection between place of both the research and then where it's being shown, thinking about Weeksville as a, a location that many saw as, African Americans saw as buying land as a chance to gain opportunity, and it was really one of the settlements that then became known as Brooklyn. And then you think about Tulsa and Black Wall Street and how that was also sort of the version of economic gain through money, and I'd like to hear that connection about that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I probably should have led with that. You know, I'm super thankful that, you know, we're treating this show um, here at Untitled as almost a preview to the show that's going to debut at the Weeksville Heritage Center in Brooklyn. And one of the exciting things for me is to see this research about historically black community get presented at this site that's dedicated to the preservation of the history of another historically black community. Um, and how do you think about those connections, the past, parallel past, maybe not the same time, but then also in the present, thinking about how Brooklyn is well, shifting? Yeah, I mean, this, this whole conversation about gentrification, things like that, um, this idea of... Um, I don't, I don't want to like fold manifest destiny into that, but it is part of it, you know. I did this program, uh, the Art and Law program, a few years back, and maybe that's one of the other things that kind of drew me to this, because that was one of the other really sort of fucked up stories about this, is that, you know, these people literally burned all of their businesses to the ground, and then they suppressed the redevelopment of those businesses by putting in these really stringent um, fire code regulations. So they put in all this like legal regulations in order to make it so difficult to get any of these buildings up to code that they couldn't rebuild these things. Um, so and that, that was kind of one of the other things that made me want to do this research, just thinking about, and this is where I'm kind of trying to key in when I think about the different ways in which our success is left precarious because there's, all these, there's still all these ways in which you can um, subvert the progress or subvert the success and um, snatch it away, essentially, yeah. Well, I think 
we're at time. Thank you, Damon, for joining us. Thank you Thank for you. being here. Thank you, Latchkey, Untitled. Uh, this conversation is being archived and will exist as a podcast, so definitely check it out again. Share it with friends. Um, enjoy the rest of the fair. Enjoy your day. Uh, thank you again. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.